a line isn't wrong until you after you put the next one down. Music is the same way. The sound, you don't make bad notes. The the, the other the note next to the the one that you think is bad corrects the one in front. Yes. the delay at a busy month of july this is a, a hobby podcast i do need to keep up with a little bit better but uh, just a lot of things going on a lot of overtime at work but i think this is definitely an episode that was worth the wait this is more of a discussion with television writer producer comic book writer I don't, who knows what else he's a podcaster now rodney barnes we we talk about miles davis here we talk about his career the influence that miles davis had on the doors but we have a great discussion here, and we even have uh, many, many excerpts from uh, multiple books, interviews, an interview from Jim that he talked about Miles Davis. Uh, and definitely something you don't want to miss. So this is a really fun conversation. Rodney, somebody I've talked to a lot, uh, mostly in the in the realm of horror, but he he, he is definitely uh, into music, and you can check out some of the music he's into as as, as this is dropping. The, the first uh, episode of season two dropped August 6th on Max, uh, formerly HBO Max. You can stream it now of, of winning time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, which is an amazing show. Check out season one and, and go ahead and hop into season two. It follows you know some of the greatest basketball players ever, as you have like Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that whole 80s Lakers team. It's great. You can check out his comic. Philadelphia, it's they're doing a great crossover with Spawn, so you can look forward to that. I think it's Spawn's crossing over issue two seventy six starting next month, and Spawn is going to start crossing over with Philadelphia, which is amazing. And Rodney just just uh, I think he just finished up the Mandalorian uh, season two book comic book, you know, in between this recording and this coming out, uh, it was announced that one of the books he's doing is Luke Cage, so. A lot of stuff coming out from Rodney. If you need to check any of that, be sure to go over to his Twitter at the Rodney Barnes, and he all of that stuff is there. You can find information on how to get his other books off Amazon, whether it be Blackula or anything else. And I listed a lot of the titles and stuff he's worked on on the cover art to uh, of this podcast, which sort of emulated that Miles Davis kind of blue album. But I'm sorry for the long-winded intro. Uh, without further ado, here's our here is my conversation with Rodney Barnes about the illustrious career of Miles Davis. I guess this is going to be so. This is for my podcast, "Opening the Doors," which is about the Doors, but it go, talks about their influences, their musical influences, and stuff. One of their big influences is Miles, Miles Davis. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is sort of a new audience introduced to you for the first time, and I think the first time I interviewed you for Cold Shack's Loop way back when. I feel like you didn't have as much for me to go over. Uh, but man, you've got so much stuff nowadays. What all books are you on? Mandalorian, uh, comic books you're writing, the Mandalorian comic book. You've got Philadelphia uh, still, uh, Nita yeah. Halls, uh, got your, uh, still your Substack, which is still going strong. 
Monarch. Monarch, uh, yeah. Blackula. Uh, got a book I'm doing for DC I can't talk about yet. And Ooh, another yeah. Star Wars property I can't talk about yet. And a Marvel property I can't talk about yet. But yeah, a lot of stuff happening at the same time. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things going on. So I'm not saying it's a good thing because it's never a good thing to be on strike. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. If you're in the world of writing comics and trying to do everything at the same time, being able to have a break to get some things done is a good thing. Yeah. And this is sort of a first for the podcast too. Most of my, all of my guests up to this point have had a doors tie of some sort uh, Mm -hmm. or, or had a direct correlation to them. And I don't know if you've ever, or, or been doors, I guess what I'd call super fans. I don't know if you're, I've never really talked to you about that. I don't know if you've, what your relationship was the doors music. I know you sort of have a connection because Snoop Dogg did that great, version of riders uh maybe a couple decades ago i don't remember how long ago that was now i remember it being on one of the tony hawk video games which is awesome uh but what is your in do you have any i guess have you ever listened to doors music i'm sure you're sort of familiar with it in some way the movie and apocalypse now that's about it i mean uh of all of my when i go back to that period you know more Jimi hendrix and around there and that kind of stuff and slop probably yeah, a little bit, but mostly songs, like individual songs, you know, Bob Dylan and just different things that you hear over the years because my period of really music, I think for me, being able to control how you listen to music is really when you find your period, like when you start buying albums, because I'm old. Yeah. but And I started buying albums around 16, 17 years old when I had my first job. So other than that, it was the radio or whatever came on TV, uh, music shows or that type of thing. So I wasn't able to follow them like today. You can go on Apple Music and anything you've ever heard of that has ever been made ever, you can hear. But my introduction was Apocalypse Now. Like I said, after that, the uh, Oliver Stone movie. I interviewed uh, Randall Johnson. He did the screenplay. And that was a pretty interesting interview because... And I'm sure you're, I mean, you've had issues with the, with the, or not issues, but sort of ran into this. He, he wrote the screenplay like seven years before it ever got made and it sits on a shelf and he doesn't hear back. And then he gets fired from the project and they bring more people in to write the scripts and then they dump their scripts and he gets hired on, but he never really, and Oliver Stone was pretty much like, here's your cash. I'm using your script, but you don't, don't, I don't need any more from you pretty much. And Oliver Stone sort of chops it up and does his own thing with it. Yeah. But you know, today we are actually talking about one of the doors influences that I think is not as pronounced. And it, it, this is very cool, cool that it sort of lined up this way. We've had this plan since probably March, I would say, that we've had this lined up. Just mm-hmm. last month, uh, in the middle of last month, there was news that there's a new Doors album, new Doors material, some of their very first few concerts in 67 at the Matrix wow. is coming out. And and nobody's known what was on these, and there's some instrumentals. And there's actually some Miles Davis instrumentals that they covered, which is interesting time, and we've never heard them do any of their stuff live. But we are talking about Miles Davis. Talk about somebody who has a, a huge career, something that uh, we probably definitely won't get into in this podcast, but I definitely want to cover, scratch the surface of it. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned Winning Time. One of the things, mm-hmm. one of the coolest scenes in that movie is early on in Winning Time, it talks about, you talk about jazz in relation to basketball and saying the, the movement and, you know, and it, I thought that was an interesting concept. What was your first introductions to jazz? I started to listen to, Again, going back to being old, there were a lot of albums always laying around in the house. So my mother listened to a lot of stuff. And it wasn't so much as I segregated music at the time of saying this was jazz, this is R&B, this is rock. It was just be, it would just be whatever was laying 
around that I would sort of listen to, mostly out of curiosity or boredom. I'm an only child. So when I wasn't reading comic books, a lot of times I'd be listening to music. I remember getting a hold of uh, a couple of Miles Davis albums, and I remember falling in love with Blue and Green, uh, the song Blue and Green. Mm-hmm. And just that whole feeling. And I'd never really felt that from music before because when you listen to standard radio, you get pop music, you know, or pop R&B music. And this was different in some way. And because I was a weird child and and a little weird adult, I would start to go on my own sort of explorations and trying to figure out what is this, you know? And that sort of introduced me to the world of Blue Note where um, a lot of his stuff with Johnny Hartman and um, John Coltrane and just different things that I would listen to. And then, you know, I've had this weird intersection sometimes because of my age again to where um, I meet certain artists when they're going through transitions, like Miles Davis was uh, playing with Prince for a while and starting to do things that were more poppy towards the end of his career. And that opened the door up to being able to listen to the new stuff, but also to be able to go through sketches in Spain and different stuff and really a uh, bitch's brew and really get to know some of the music in a different way. I don't know it as much from the individual songs as much as I do the entire album. Cause back then, once you put an album on, you just listen to the entire album. Yeah. It wasn't like now where you have this dynamic where you push a button and you hear a song and you know, you don't even have to listen to the rest of the album if it is in album form. So, um, yeah, uh, that was sort of the beginning for me. Do you know, you talked about Miles Davis sort of transitioning through music. That was sort of the way I discovered him too, because I discovered him through, I was an only child too. And I was very, once I found something, I would go down a rabbit hole. So the very first like 60s musician I got into was Hendrix. And okay. I, I loved Jimmy. I loved all of his stuff. Man, you talk about being devastated when I find his music and I look to see if he's touring or anything nowadays. And I find out he's dead on the same night I'm, I find him. You know, uh, right. that that was sort of whirlwind of, of emotion. But I, I remember, you know, you're wearing a Scooby-Doo shirt. I remember hearing the first time I heard him was a Casey Kasem uh, radio show that he had did. It was talking <laughs> about his Isle of Wight performance. And we'll talk about the Isle of Wight Festival here in a little bit. Uh, because Miles Davis also performed it on it and so did The Doors. But, you know, talking about that, I got to Hendrix and then I sort of expanded from there, found a random CD of The Doors, didn't know anything about them. I listened to it and they led me down a, a sort of a, a rabbit hole of listening, you know, reading uh, Jack Kerouac and the beatnik poets of the time and and, and all this. And I, I looked through their musical influences and I started listening to Willie Dixon, you know, the blues, the old Muddy Waters and stuff like that. And it got me to Miles Davis eventually and uh, John Coltrane, which I feel like we need to do if you want to maybe later on this year. I would love to talk about Coltrane, too, because he had even probably a more distinct influence on the doors. But, you know, it sort of led me down this rabbit hole of music that I was unfamiliar with. I think growing up, we are all sort of colored by where we are and and our our racial Mm -hmm. backgrounds and all this stuff. So growing up, I didn't hear you know, and, and my parents were never, you know, not racist or anything. I'm not saying that, but just in, individual, you don't hear, I didn't hear as much black music as I did, you know, some of the more popular white music right. where I am. And I'm, right. and, and you know, I don't know what the case with you, but I, I would probably say that you probably shaded more towards, you know, black musicians, would you say, or was it more of a mix? Well, it was weird for me because it was funny. I was telling my kids about this the other day because I was listening to Yacht Rock Radio uh, <laughs> in my car and my daughter just kind of looked at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? And because it's elevated music at this point. Yeah. But 
when I was a kid, my grandmother was a domestic and she would take me with her when I was little and uh, the radio would always be on. And so I didn't even know there was such a thing as FM radio. We're talking about five, six years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would hear all of these songs. So Barry Manilow and ABBA and all of these. So I knew these songs. And so I really didn't start to listen to hard R&B other than the albums that my mother bought uh, until, like I said, I was 16, 17 years old. But I always listened to the radio. So I had a really fundamental understanding of pop music that came from everywhere. And back then, pop music was... You could have everything from Neil Sedaka and Tony Orlando to Gladys Knight or whatever. It was mm -hmm. sort of, it wasn't quite as segregated in the same way, Stevie Wonder and different people. And then when I started to explore on my own is when I started to fall in love with, you know, I won't say black music, but I started to get more ingrained with um more of the history of music in a different kind of way. But I will say, I had a friend, uh, Mike Jackson, and uh, lived across the street from me. And he said, you need to listen to this. He gave me a cassette tape because he's old too. And um, it was uh, The Police and it was Synchronicity. And I was like, man, I don't want to hear this. You know, this doesn't come on the cool uh, station I typically listen to. Fell in love with it. Fell in love with Sting. To this day, still follow him around like people used to follow the Grateful Dead around. And Sting actually opened my opened me up to another aspect of jazz because his first band, the Blue Turtles, uh, when he went on the Blue Turtles tour, had Branford had an all black band. It had Branford Marcellus and a bunch of jazz people who were a part of it as well. And you know, when I read Branford's book, and Branford talked about the influence of Miles Davis as well, and that brought me back to Sting as well. And you just start to see that a lot of people, a lot of the British invasion, how those guys were inspired by a lot of black artists and Chuck Berry, certainly with um, John Lennon. And, oh, yeah. you know, and so you just start to see that, you know, music has this quality, even if the politics of the artists may skew one way or the other, the music itself sort of has its own truth in uh, meritocracy to where yeah. If the music is a certain thing, it sort of crosses streams and you just sort of dig it. Unless you just have a closed mind and you say, I just listen to this and I just do this thing. If you dig deep enough, you see that music has a way of just crossing streams. And I notice, I think that actually plays a lot generationally because I know in my era, a lot of people who listen to music are a lot more open-minded with the types of music that they listen to. And I can only speak for, you know, my kids in the world that they grow up in and they seem to stay in a certain lane, you know, whether yeah. that's hip hop, R and B and that type of thing or things that are influenced by that and not so much even willing sometimes to jump outside of that into different types of music. You know, I'm a huge fan and friend, uh, Robert Glasper. Um, who also did a, a tribute album, I think, for Miles Davis. He does our score for Winning Time, the show that I do on HBO. Yeah, and um, you know, we talk music sometimes because he's sort of he's sort of a purist in today's world as to you know understanding music in a very specific way, kind of like what we're talking about right now. You know, hodgepodge mutt of listening to a lot. You would be surprised at the types yeah. of things that I listen to. Everything from Ambrosia 
to uh, anything, man. You would be shocked to to the things that I listen to. You know, and I think that's a good, and that was sort of, I guess, growing up, my mind was really focused on, I guess, that country sound and just where I was. And it was real big in the, in the early, because I, I was born in 93. So this is like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, I'm older than you. So. <laughs> well, yeah, you are, but don't but, tell stories of me of Rodney <laughs> one day. But, <laughs> but but you know, we I sort of found all the the country music from that, and, and we'll get into Miles Davis's mu- life a little bit here because I, I sort of one of the great documentaries came out recently, 2019. Was it co- the Birth of Cool? I think it was called. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. I listen. I watched it, and this is this was right before I messaged you. I was watching it and sort of sort of stewing on it, you know, a little bit early early on. Davis is born. Uh, his father was, I didn't know this was the second richest black man in, in supposedly in mm-hmm. Illinois at the time. I thought that was interesting. Moves to St. Louis to picks up the trumpet at 13. He's a dentist or something. Dentist. Right? Yeah. He was a dentist. Yeah. He was a dentist. Yeah. And, and he's, I think he saw his parents getting into a lot of domestic, uh, you know, fights, including his father on one occasion, knocking out his, his mother's teeth. And, and yeah. that's something that, that I think carried through with, with Davis as, as you know, I don't know if we'll get to it, but, but, I was going to ask you that too. That's another thing that's happened with Doors music is some of the things that Jim Morrison has done in his past. Some of the things that happened. How do you reconcile that personally? Like, do you separate the artist from their actions sometimes? I don't know. That's sort of been a hard thing for me to um, do too. I, I think for me, you have to be, it's according to what it was first. Yeah. What, what's the infraction that we're talking yeah, yeah. about first. But if we're talking about a lot of times, what I've tried to do is connect and be empathetic to the period of time that these people came up in and the type of world that they were in. I think a lot of times people paint with a wide brush today's yeah. sensibilities on yesterday's world. And whether we like it, dislike it, don't agree with it or whatever, it was what it was and it can't be changed because it's the past. And it's nothing you can do about the past. And a lot of the work that I do, history seems to come up. You know, I'm working on a Jack Johnson. Um, yeah miniseries right now and you sort of look at his sensibilities and the world that he was in and you know i'm not perfect and on my worst days i'd hate to be judged on the worst days that i've had in my life or the worst things that i've said or made someone feel at a time so i try to apply that same idea to you know people that have an immense amount of pressure probably are very sensitive creatives and you know, grew up in a different time where the boundaries were different than the world that we are in right now. But again, it comes to, we're talking about murder or harming someone or something like that. That's a different, you know, that's something that's off the table in a different type of way. But if we're talking about different types of behavior, you know, I, I remember I applied to comedy a lot. I grew up in a world where you had guys like Don Rickles and just different types of comedians who yeah. said all types of things. And I ingested these things as a child and how we talk to each other when I was growing up as a kid versus today when, um, you know, it's funny, you're wearing an NWO shirt yeah. and I watch Dark Side of the Ring on a regular basis. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Because that's my era, you know, Jim Cornette and all of that stuff. And and those guys, that's I love wrestling during that period of time. And I remember watching the plane ride from hell, uh, the one where uh, all the wrestlers acted poorly on this plane coming back from Europe to the States. And Ric Flair used to have this thing, uh, 16-time world champion Ric Flair, used to have this thing where he would take off his clothes and put on his robe and be naked and run through the plane. 
And I guess uh, one of the stewardesses was traumatized by this. And the guys loved it because this is what Rick does and Rick is Rick. And I remember watching it with my son. And my son was saying, who's younger than me, obviously, because he's Mm -hmm. my son. And he was talking about, wow, that, you know, the way that made her feel. And man, you know, he should be canceled and he should be whatever. And I listened to what he was saying in the place that he was coming from and how the world of wrestling and that world is so different than the world that, you know, my son is looking at and feeling today's world. And we had a great conversation just about, you know, his perspective and his point of view and how he sees the world. And you got to honor that. But in regards to, you know, how I take in art, I haven't met an artist yet that is perfect per se. So it's like you see it on a spectrum. And like I said, it has a lot to do with the infraction. It has a lot to do with the world that they were in. Yeah. And I I think, you know, similar, not definitely not similar, but I think another case is there's a lot, especially being a Beatles fan and and their last album, Let It Be, Phil Spector, you know, mixing it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you rectify that? And I think, but going back to Miles Davis, going back to Jim Morrison too, there, there's this learned behavior too, as a kid. And that I don't think it necessarily is like, Hey, this is their excuse or this is an out, but you got to understand socially where people come from, what they experienced growing up. But a lot of people who come from really traumatic backgrounds are the people who end up making art that pushes the boundaries in a way. Yeah. But they see the world emotionally and psychologically through those traumatic, you know, upbringings. But there you go. I'm saying no, you're good. I think that's a perfect way to sort of cap that point. And I didn't want to get all the way into that, but I think it's an important thing to talk about. I saw a Clash article recently. I think they're they used to be a big magazine rock publication. I think they're I don't know if they moved yeah. all the way online, but they had one about Jim Morrison sort of rectifying how do you how do you take this? And I think it just came out yesterday or the day before, maybe. So Miles goes off, he goes to Juilliard and he studies music, but he really gets his real learning in uh, on 52nd Street in New York. He goes and goes to the club, sees Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and all these and starts playing with them. And after playing with these greats, he doesn't feel adequate. And I think that's that's something anybody who creates, anybody who's a creator sort of sometimes feels that inadequacy. But he did something interesting. He created his own lyrical style of playing and and sort of invented this different tone, a slower smoother you know not not because jazz from what i've seen and you know i'm not by far i'm not a jazz historian but from listening to like that pre-40s jazz like that 40s era jazz it's real driving it just pushes forward almost where davis sort of slows things down you know he he's real lyrical and it's more about the feeling and he incorporates i guess a lot of blues and and i think blues and jazz have heavy sort of they're intertwined but they're they're different but they are they have a lot of similarities too and they're birthed out of that same uh, you know, that deep South sort of slavery thing, wouldn't you say? So uh, I, I thought that was interesting. And he got after the war, he goes to France and does all this. I, I just find it so interesting. Like he goes to France, meets all the French intellectuals and artists, even met, uh, you know, one of the greatest artists of all time, uh, Pablo Picasso and returned to the States in a very, a very depressive state. The way that he sees, you know, black people being treated here compared to in France where he's sort of uplifted, and and this is sort of a I mean it's a double edged sword like how do you say oh it's it's great he came back and is depressed because he released a bunch of great music afterwards probably one of his greatest periods of music like how how do you say that but I mean it's true he comes plays the nineteen fifty five Newport Jazz Festival and it, one of the organizers even said it changed the face of jazz and after he comes back from France he just 
goes through probably his most recognizable period of music. Well, I think for me, guys like Miles and James Baldwin, and I even put, you know, for comedy purposes, Richard Pryor and, yeah. and different people, um, different intellectuals and artists and poets. When you try to, I'm doing a story, I may be doing a story at some point about Gil Scott Heron. And, um, one of the things that in my research and one of the commonalities that I find, and I see some of it in myself as well, is that when you try to reconcile the story of race in America and how it's affected your life um, intrinsically, but the larger culture extrinsically, and then you can go further out into America, and you try to take that pain and figure out what to do with it creatively, beautiful things can come from the art. But you're still left with the pain. Yeah. And what does that do? And I think that duality, that dance of pain and art, you know, I, I look at people like um, Nina Simone and um, uh, Billie Holiday and, and just people who had a way of taking what they saw and what they felt and making it into art. And you know, in my own little way, I try to do the same things when I write the stories that I write that are specific to that topic. But it's still like a haunting in a way. It's like a form of almost possession to where you want the art to make the world a better place. And in some ways it does. And the people whose hearts can be touched or ears in this case can be touched, they tend to, um, it resonates and sometimes can overcome whatever that thing is inside that isn't working as well, that's problematic. But in other cases, it just services as a reminder of what the pain is. And typically people hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And unless you do something to reconcile or come to terms with it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one because you're dealing with personal abuse you know, people within their families, things that happen within families as a human being. And then this other thing, this, uh, this outlier that's in the world when you go outside and how you're treated and how you're affected. So, you know, I just think it's really tough to find a a balance or a constant to where you can, um, I don't know, make some type of blanket judgment about anyone or anything. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's beautiful that guys like that, and I don't know if artists today do the same thing where they travel the world. And and one of the reasons why, you know, like relationships, like I said, with Robert Glasper and, and artist friends that I have and, and cultivating, one of those reasons is you want to be able to touch different types of beauty. And there's something about poetry and art and music and things and people who are really passionate about those things that makes that cultivates emotionally this thing inside of you if you have it inside of you and i think it makes you better it humbles you when you see beauty in different places um even in nature in some ways um or in children or whatever it is that touches your heart and if you're able to do that i think you're able to create a bridge between you and the art that you make you know, just sometimes by being in the presence of people who make art and make great art and who are deeply committed to the art that they make. 
I know how much I value that. And I can only imagine a Miles Davis traveling the world and being around those types of people at that hot bit of a time. Because if you think about the 50s, you're about to move into the heat of the civil rights movement. And you're starting to move into periods of guys like Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and Martin Luther King and, um, you know, SNCC and all the different, you know, the different riots that were born out of assassinations and different types of things. And Vietnam, women's movement, and all the peace movements, and just different things to make music during that period of volatility. You know, I think the volatility that is in America today feels a lot more cynical. That time, just from the studies of it and a little bit the tail end of it that I remember, felt like there was a degree of the same types of anger that you have today, but also the sense of optimism that the world was going to get better. So if you listen to the music and you hear your earth, wind and fires or your different types of music, there was a feeling of peace and love and all of these other things. But that was juxtaposed to, you know, guys coming back from the war and people treating them poorly and heroin, you know, and PTSD and all of this other stuff. So, again, to make art that speaks to that period of time is um, I'm sure was a pretty special period for American music. Yeah, and you talked about you mentioned heroin. I know that uh, you know, da- unfortunately Miles Davis sort of did suffer from uh, some heroin, you know, addiction issues. But one thing you talked about was racism, and I think there was, you know, there's definitely a blanket racism that definitely covered the United States during this time period. But I think racism is a very personal experience. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that if you lived in New York, I definitely, you know, Miles Davis talked about later, you know, he was arrested and hit in the head by, by a cop. He was standing outside smoking a cigarette at a club. He was playing out with his, with his name on the marquee and he was attacked. But you know, there's, there's a type of racism there. And, and, but there's somebody who may live somewhere where, you know, they they maybe weren't as affected. Of course it was, it was an all over thing. But, you know, even into the 60s, who aren't as, who wasn't as affected. And then you have somebody like Miles Davis, who has traveled around, lived in St. Louis, experienced firsthand. And and there's a, I mean, it's, the racism definitely persisted. But everybody has a different different experience. And when you go to France and you see the, the budding, you know, hey, I'm sure, I don't know if there's a bit of, I really can't say if there was racism in France or not as much. Definitely not as much as the United States, probably. But you go and you see these intellectuals accepting him into their circles and stuff. And he comes back. He's got a different perspective than you know than somebody who has lived here their whole life, maybe not left within a ten mile radius of their home. You know what I mean? But I still think that racism is a personal issue to everyone who experienced it. Does that make sense? I don't want to be insensitive. No, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, I think that a lot of times, and even today, you have. I won't say if I could enter into a world where there are people who appreciate a particular thing. And I happen to do that thing really, really well. I think that there are exceptions sometimes to yeah. for me because I do this thing really well. It doesn't mean that you necessarily gravitate to the entire culture that way, but you gravitate certainly to that person. So Miles Davis being Miles Davis, even if you if he wasn't fully formed into the Miles Davis that hit his stride at a certain point, even still, there would be an appreciation of the art. And eventually, if you have an appreciation for the art, it opens up the door, I think, to have an appreciation for the man. And that still is a singular event. It doesn't necessarily mean um, that the entire culture is embraced. I think that a lot of artists were able to find, for lack of a better word, a safe haven in places like France during that period of time, because it wasn't as hot 
as America. It wasn't as angry as America. It didn't have the exact same history as in America. But I'm sure it still manifested itself in uh, the ways that it manifested in whatever. I know um, certain Africans talk about that from time to time and the things that they have to deal with. But certainly, I think if you go to a place and you have a thing and you find your tribe in that place, you're going to be appreciated probably in a different way than just the average person that's walking the streets. But yes, to your what you said, your observation, yeah, I think how you internalize racism has a lot to do with um, you, your sensibilities. You know, there's some people who you can say something to, they're treated a particular way, and it affects them for the rest of their life. Some people you can say the exact same thing to, and they're able to sort of walk it off, or um, it doesn't have the same effect. And I think that has a lot to do with the humanity and psychology of the individual that's being subjected to a particular thing. So in that case, yes. But I do think, you know, there are a lot of times where it's concentrated and how people are depicted in television, how people are depicted in film, and how people are depicted in uh, mass ideas like redlining or employment, or you know, there 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 are these big macro blocks of how race and racism manifest themselves in America in a different type of way. And then there's the individual stuff and the things that can't be legislated: how one person looks at another person and how they treat them on the street, or how they treat them in a grocery store. I think um, one affects the other. But it comes down to the individual as to how they internalize and disseminate that within themselves. Yeah, we see that with, you know, in 55, he moves away from Davis, moves away from the bebop and he focuses more on the I guess it's been called modal jazz. The the first quintet he makes with John Coltrane and he moves into this this uh, collaboration with with Gil Evans and does all that. And he makes that kind of blue album, which is so iconic and it's such an, you know. I've learned the names of, you know, you talked about not knowing the names of songs. I've learned the names of songs recently, you know. Uh, I knew them all at one time, but it's like, if I don't, I have this weird thing. I think it comes with the business of Let things me. are gone because the new thing is coming in and I have to focus so much on the new thing. It's hard to hold on to the old thing. Yeah, no, but, but it was one of those things where when I first listened to it and I found it the other day, I don't know if I still have it around here. I found my CD copy of Kind of Blue that I kept in my car with a bunch of poetry and, and writings I had in high school and college because I, I had the main two CDs I had was I had that and I had uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd that I kept that I kept in mm. rotation for a while in high school and I'm sure I had a oh The Wall yeah. was a great album too yeah, and man. so and, and Miles Davis in order to do this has to finish his contract he wants to sign with Columbia he has to finish up with Prestige so he does this he brings his you know Coltrane and all the guys into the studio in in a couple days, he knocks out like five albums worth of music or something like that in order to sign with Columbia. He signs with Columbia and does that. And then he moves on. There's this French uh, movie. And, and this is another famous part, uh, Elevator of the Gallows. And he watches it, you know, maybe once or twice through. And then he improvises and he plays it through. And I don't, have you ever had a chance to see Elevator of the Gallows? It's a French film, I, I believe. I have not seen it. No, 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 no. I haven't seen it. But I have seen the clips of Davis. Uh, there's one iconic scene where the lead actress sort of walks from the st- from the storefront and she walks down the street and he, and there's a picture of him and I think he's got a cigarette he's sitting in his ashtray and he's playing the trumpet and he's watching and and the fact that the way that he watches the scene and he's able to pick up and improvise on the spot and it was like from what I understand a one take through the entire movie 
and the band mm-hmm. sort of follows him. And, and Davis had that that I don't know if you'd call it a cult of personality or just the the way he was able to lead or, or and people followed him. He was able to just get everybody on the same page with him no matter what, and he could improvise this whole piece and he would have them right behind him there. And, you know, kind of blue, you know, we talked about it. He brought in, didn't even bring in sheet music, brings in sketches. And he wanted a lot of spontaneity because he wanted a, he said that playing with the best musicians, they will adapt to the situation. They'll play beyond what is there and above where they think they can. So he, he believes that not keeping them confined, letting them play within the music will lead a better result. So you have that. And I don't know. So what is just such a great opening track, I think. And, there's this there's this Miles Davis mystique about this time because he really becomes big after Kind of Blue, and it's just it's just this successful launching of the mainstream by him, and he gets these tailored suits, and he's got sunglasses and he's driving all these fast cars, you know, and he gets that. And also another unique aspect I've heard somebody mention, one of the cultural historians that I was looking into, was that even his dark skin, you know, because he was a lot, you know, there's something about. Being light skinned in America versus being dark skinned in America, and maybe that's a discussion I'm not apt to talk about. But I think mm-hmm. he sort of made that even he even made that cool. You know the way that he portrayed himself. You know, it was just an interesting aspect, and he really was at that point on top of the world in jazz. I think that you know the great thing about Miles and there are other guys that also played into this as well is when you think about Harlem and you think about jazz, there was a style that came with it how guys dressed, the way they carried themselves. It made it cool. And I think Miles certainly, you know, was the epitome of that. He just sort of um, had a grace with the way that he went about doing what he did. And again, you know, back to an earlier part of the conversation, when you talk about hanging with artists, you know, people who make art and people who are uh, poets and different things, it's like, it's sort of, fashion bleeds into this other idea of what art is because fashion is a form of art as well. And, you know, those guys hung out in art galleries and different things and poetry readings and different stuff. And I just think that it's so cool that it almost becomes a weird type of creative competition of who can be the best version of themselves as an artist. But I can only imagine, again, being able to hang out on a regular basis. You can go down to the Blue Note or whatever club you're at and listen to Miles Davis and John Coltrane and all of these guys. Then you can go over here to an art gallery and you can do this and you can do that. It just felt like um, a really cool time. Really cool time. I wish I was a part of it. Yeah, and another interesting thing he did for, I guess, racial tension and things, he he put out an album for Columbia and they put this – I guess this white woman, you know, typical white woman in a bathing suit and stuff on a, on a yacht on one of the album covers. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, man, hey, what is she doing on my album cover? You know, well, he said, what is this white bitch doing on my album cover? To quote him directly. And mm-hmm. and so they changed it. You know, they, they pulled it and they put a picture of him. But then he had his his wife, uh, uh, Frances. I forgot what her last name was. She was a a dancer around that time. And she uh, was working on, I think, a, a, a production of uh, West Side Story. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But. You know, he he does all this and he has her on the cover and he starts demanding that Columbia put black women on the cover, you know, have his race on the cover of his albums, you know, which I think is a really cool thing that he did. And he falls in love with Flamenco around this time. We talk about the uh, sketches of Bane, some of that stuff that he did. And Someday My Prince Will Come, he covered some Disney stuff. 
and brought this mainstream stuff into jazz and did it in his own reflective way that I thought was so interesting. And mm-hmm. But also around this time in the 60s, he's drinking more and snorting more cocaine, and I think he's uh, had an un- unsuccessful hip surgery, had to have his hip surgery again, and his wife ended up leaving him after you know some more abusive moments that he had with her, and, and he was at a very low point at this point. And even in his band... He felt Coltrane was not playing for the band, that he was more playing for himself, and he wanted to just make a new band, wipe the slate clean. And we have this new, I guess, movement towards funk and rock and stuff. And he he didn't want to really rely on anybody. He wanted to bring in these super young musicians. I think his his drummer at the time was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and this is his quote. He felt like jazz was withering on the vine and funk and rock was on the rise in 1969. And uh, he, Betty, he ended up meeting his another wife, Betty Davis, and she was, you know, this huge personality in funk. And they say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake, sweet to the core. That's right, I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like a fox trot. Now instead she spit it's nothing boogie down on drain. And in that forefront, and she helped him sort of make the transition. Uh, dressed him in the he he dressed a lot like Hendrix some of the times, you know, some mm-hmm. of those bell bottoms, scarves, and the, yeah. some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this was a very different type of music and a very different type of jazz. And he wanted an electric bass. I think one of the big things that helped split up his band was his the bassist. Was it Charlie? Who was his bassist? Was it Charlie Parker who was playing bass? I'd have to look it up. I don't really remember. I don't want to get it wrong. No, I don't either. So I probably just did. But he wanted to move towards electric bass. And he's like, you know, I, don't, I only play upright, man. So he moved away from that, started a new band. But then you have the, you know, Bitch Spruce, something you talked about, which marked a new, dare I say, sort of psychedelic direction for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you see a lot of, especially when he plays the trumpet, there's a lot more vibration, a lot of more of a vibrato on the walls. You hear the bounce back of of all this and it's it's a definitely a different tone to anything he's done. He began playing with Fillmore East, which I talked to Joshua White who did the light shows at the Fillmore East about Jimi Hendrix and the Who and the Doors. I need to talk to him about Miles Davis. I want that would be interesting. But he starts making playing the Fillmore East, you know, the psychedelic club and he gets his first check and he said, Man, I'm robbing from these guys. He thinks he's just making hand and he's making money, you know. And this is just such a different time. And and he's exploring musical outlets and he play you know, his next album on the corners move towards Indian music. And, you know, it's he gets a lot more white fans at this time. A lot of these people who were into the psychedelic music move to him, but a lot of his older fans are sort of left not understanding the music, I guess. Yes. And they want the old stuff. Yeah, and it's a transition, definitely. And he made, you know, different all these albums through the mid to late uh to the early to mid seventies and he laid a lot of groundwork for hip hop and rap and that would come decades later, you know. You know, one of those albums we talked you know, you mentioned Jack Johnson. He did the tribute to Jack Johnson album. I think it was for uh, I got it. Yeah, maybe. I have it someplace over here. Uh, keep talking. I'll find it. Yeah, but that was released February twenty fourth of seventy one. And mm-hmm. so that would have been, you know, a few months before yeah, Jim Morrison. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jim Morrison died in July of 71, so this was a few months before that. And in 75, he ends up putting down everything, you know, putting down the instruments. But you have a big change there, a big swing. He played the Isle of Wight Festival, and I listened to the to his concert on that, and it is, it's very different. It's very different than what he did. Mm-hmm. 
far as periods go, uh, we've talked a lot about the you know, bebop and and the and the modal jazz, and then his move to this funk sort of era. What was your favorite? I guess any of your favorite era or collaborations he did? Again, that whole bitches brew um, kind of blue. That period was my favorite for me. I appreciated in real time being able to like buy a Miles Davis album and be able to you know see him last on live once but um that was an appreciation but it was still sort of founded upon the stuff that i was introduced to earlier on yeah but so uh, bitches brew comes out in 71 and kind of blue is like 58 they're they're, they're yeah. sort of different periods which one, they are they yeah. are but i think oh well if we're saying which one between those two i'm still going to go with uh kind of blue yeah 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 but but yeah. You, but that period of davis in particular you felt like he was he was really oh, yeah. in his creative prime for me yeah. It wasn't so much in his prime because yes, yeah. it's all subjective. But I think for me, that was the period I was introduced and the thing that I loved. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't much that I didn't like Tutu and some of the other albums. It wasn't too much that I um, didn't like. But if we're talking about the love affair, it's a lot like Stevie Wonder. You know, if you get me on those first few albums, um, Songs Through the Key of Life and that kind of stuff. Versus in Square Circle or some of the older albums, still love them, still Stevie. Yeah. But to go back to the beginning is sort of where you know I fell in love with them, and that's where my sensibility sort of was still there, wanting to hear different versions of that. Yeah, and you know, one of the musicians he was wanting to collaborate with that might have made an appearance in a Philadelphia book, uh, Jimi Hendrix, who oh, yeah, 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 who he with jammed. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, with Thomas Thomas Jefferson in a band at Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. God, if you guys, if you haven't read Philadelphia, it is it is great. (laughs) But Jimi Hendrix and Davis, you know, apparently they jammed on multiple occasions in his New York apartment, and he, you know, they wanted to do something that none of this is recorded, unfortunately. But they wanted Paul McCartney. They contacted Paul McCartney, wanted him to be on bass, and Hendrix, Davis, and jazz drummer Tony Williams uh, Mm -hmm. to, to do a band thing. And I thought that was so cool. But uh, he was on vacation. Paul McCartney was on vacation. And I don't know. I always felt the the Coltrane uh, Davis connection really, really just strong. I felt like Coltrane really was. And I think it's one of the things that the Doors thought was he was amazing at his craft. Mm -hmm. But one thing I was going to ask you is, are there any specific compositions or performances by Davis that you felt particularly evocative or moving? Something you remember? Maybe, Maybe not albums, but maybe actually live performances or anything. There's one. Oh, my God. I don't know the name of it. It's Miles in Paris. Um, I bought it at Amoeba Music on uh, Sunset Boulevard here in Hollywood. And I'd never heard it before. And it was a live, live recording. And it was just fantastic from beginning to end. Um, It's like a four CD set. And um, it's somewhere, buried somewhere, (laughs) because no one listens to CDs anymore. Yeah, But... um, but it was fantastic. And that was the one, you know, I, I've been fortunate, like I said, with, you know, with Sting and Coltrane, different people, not to say those things are all the same, but live performances, there's something about a live performance and hearing that person at the height of their powers. That's sort of um, special. What was, what is something that I guess Davis and you're, cause you know, you're in the entrenched in the creative process, I would say, uh, maybe even a daily occurrence is probably an understatement like 24 seven you're in creative mode. What is something, what is, how has he influenced your work? Do you believe? Um, I think 
again, going back to that thing about creativity, what I've always tried to do once I got a little bit of confidence, because it took about a decade for me to actually look at myself as a writer, even though I was getting paid to be a writer, emotionally, imposter syndrome and a lot of different things, esteem issues and things come into play. But once I got to a place where I sort of put those feelings to the side, they still present themselves, but I put them to the side. I wanted to surround myself with things to support what it was that I did, uh, my my work. And so I will put on a Miles album and just write to set a mood. I do that with a lot of different artists, but there's certainly the early horror, the early Philadelphia stuff. Uh, Miles played a part in because it had a noir feeling, and uh, well, I was trying to go for a noir feeling. Those early, the, when you talk about 1958 and um, Kind of Blue, um, those Blue Note albums, to me, I imagine the smoky jazz club feel and guys playing jazz, and so that sort of influenced a lot of things and i'll still try to find to this day it might be hip-hop if i'm doing something that moves quickly and needs a lot of energy um but if i'm going for the type of horror that i like to write when i'm writing it i will certainly go for a more contemplative type of music and we're going to move in a little bit to the doors influence and i've actually got some excerpts from their respective books john dinsmore was the drummer for the doors he played with brushes he was had a heavy jazz influence one of the things he wrote in his book riders on the storm some kids went to the movies for escape we found it with jazz coltrane and miles seemed to us to be the culmination of 20 years of jazz this was where we got religion it was kind of raw spiritual anarchy grant and i would talk about passionate riffs and how these jazz geniuses were out there playing in the cracks between the chords searching for the unknown beyond chord structure grant's father described coltrane's music as sounding like someone was stepping on a cat's tail People who thought it was noise hadn't followed jazz through its evolution from bebop to cool to freeform. How could they possibly understand we were elitists without knowing what the word meant? It was our secret society. Anytime I dropped a needle on Live at the Village Vanguard to hear Chasing the Train, the bellowing driving energy would make me imagine I was actually inside drummer Elvin Jones' body. The tempo pushed in my veins. You know, and this was, this was talking about the Doors, one of their first uh, rehearsals. You know the groove on Dis Here by Cannonball, I asked Ray. Yeah, it's it's really tight, isn't it? It's it's in three. Let's play something in three, like all blues. Ray and Robbie picked up the cue and we jammed on all blues by Miles. Ray had thought had taught Robbie to turn around at the last rehearsal, and he had it down now. Jim carefully crept in with a single maraca beat, and I noticed that this time that his time was improving. It was good for us to get to know each other musically on these old jazz tunes. And they talked about their trip to New York also. We learned to love New York, though, though, didn't we? And they loved us. Our best audiences were in Manhattan. Ray, Dorothy, and I walked over town, Times Square that night, and steam and voices were coming from the subway grills and the pothole streets. Where did you go? You missed some great jazz. The Metropole, where Charlie Parker and Miles Davis played in the 50s, was our destination. As we approached the club, the street traffic and hustle vibe got thicker. Then the marquee read Dizzy Gillespie. We looked through the blue-tinted front window, and there was a go-go girl in a bikini dancing just on the other side. Way in the back, we could make out Dizzy puffing up his cheeks like a grotesque frog as he stretched and bloated and blew mightily on that strange horn of his. And this is talking about their last album in 71, L.A. Woman, which featured Riders on the Storm and some of the other hits. We went for feeling. 
Screw the mistakes. It worked like a charm. One afternoon, I asked Ray, and Ray Mains Eric's the keyboardist, do you know that opening on So What by Miles Davis live at Carnegie Hall? There's that big, obvious bad note in the trumpet section. Yeah, you know what Miles said about it? He said it doesn't matter because the feeling's there. Screw the errors. I'd like to think that's what we're doing the same thing with L.A. Woman. I know what you mean, man, Ray confirmed. That second take on Ryder sounded good to me. Exactly, I'll tell Bruce. And that was on a dispute they had. They wanted to retake a song, and they felt like there was a bad note. And I don't know, there's a lot of influence of Miles there. They they loved going to clubs, going picking up these jazz clubs and going there. Uh, there's another interesting thing. Like, if you look on the first album, their first album, let me see if I can pull up a picture. There, there's a, there, I mean, their, their first album's got that cover. Ah, yeah. But if you zoom in on Robbie, the guitarist, I don't know if you can see him. Can you see him all right? He's got a blue tie with polka dots. Yeah, I see him. Yeah, I see him. He bought that tie particularly for the shoot to look like that Miles Davis cover. He <laughs> thought it was so cool. And yeah. in Raymond Zarek, the keyboardist's book, he was influenced by a lot of jazz, a lot of classical, a lot of blues. But he talked about that influence on them. And he right. talked about how they, when they first got their suits, they got them all done up. You know, they, they got fitted for this and it was because of Miles Davis. And whenever John was first going to join the band, John Densmore, the drummer, he wanted to know, Ray wanted to know what his music was like. And so they talk about it. And, and, and John even asked, he said, what's the music like? And then Ray said, I want to do poetry and rock like the beatniks, you know, like poetry and jazz. John's eyes lit up. I hear a jazz based thing, but in rock, Jazz, John said. Are you into Coltrane? I love Coltrane. McCoy Tyner is my idol. I worship Elvin Jones, John said. He's the greatest drummer on the planet. That's for sure. I'm not good enough to be a jazz drummer, Ray said. Well, I'm not good enough to be a jazz keyboardist. So they started the doors and did all that. And there's a lot more that I could go into. One thing I did want to play before we got off was Jim talking about, Jim Morrison talking about his, this was him talking about because I know I think it's interesting, especially for somebody like yourself who is a comic artist. Like I don't know if you read what you read or what you take in because you, I, I imagine you don't read your own stuff. You know, you know what I mean, or do you read your own stuff? I go over it so much that I don't need to read it. You know, it's like yeah. I, I go through so many edits of a thing that by the time I finish, I have no desire to ever see it ever again. Unless there is something cool when the art comes in. You know, when you get your comps. Oh yeah. Yeah. The thing that's kind of cool, but other than that, when I'm in a comic book store and I see one of my books on the shelves, I'm not inclined to have to pick it up and look at it. No, but this is an interview Jim Morrison did at the Olive Watt Festival. I kind of came along when rock and roll, the old rock and roll, was a big thing. And like I, I guess a lot of people knocked me out, and then I discovered blues in college. I, I like that. These, if, if I'm ever going to listen to anything these days, it's I, I like jazz. So, but uh, man, there's just so much music. You can't. It's like swimming in a sea of marshmallows or something. You, you can't follow. When I heard those two things, I I said to myself, well, Sam I'm a musician, so I, I wouldn't know how to. All I knew was there was something there. And I figured if, if we couldn't if we couldn't go in that direction, you know, and, and get complex like that, then best for us to uh, do what we can really do best, which is blues. I guess Pink Floyd's been together quite a while doing that kind of music, haven't they? They're not, I don't know, I guess they're not an overnight thing. 
of course, Miles is, you know, music's been his whole life, so uh, I guess you can't get into that thing overnight. I think that was about it, but he was basically talking about his musical influence and how some of that jazz is so complex and some of the stuff that Pink Floyd does is so complex, and Miles Davis has been doing this for so long that it's something that he has just got dialed in, you know, and something that he uh, he is into. But all the members of the Doors were definitely into jazz, definitely into Miles Davis. And I think, you know, later on we'll, we'll talk about Coltrane and we'll wait till the CD comes out. I think that's coming out in September, so sometime maybe in October. We'll hope, Hopefully, if you're not busy, too busy writing 15. Yeah, always. Uh, of course. Just let me know when you need me and uh, we'll make it happen. 30 different comic books. And, you know, we talked about the Jack Johnson thing that you're working on. Is there anything you've got coming up immediately that you uh, that you that you want to, put out there plug or anything i'm just making stuff man you know uh it's always philadelphia there's always a bunch of things going on and um you know typically i push them enough you'll you'll see them when they come yeah and uh, you know that's one of the things with blackula i tried to go to a couple different stores and get them to order it because i don't know if i didn't see it in as many local amazon was the place where it sold the most oh i bet yeah wasn't a whole lot of uh comic shops there were a few uh, certainly the places that i frequent and the places that are you know i go to to do a lot of signings but it wasn't everywhere yeah but hey yeah if you want to watch rodney stuff or get rodney stuff Philadelphia, that deluxe version with the uh the betsy ross flag on the front's really cool hardcover that you can get or if you don't want to get the hardcover get you some Good old paperbacks, you know. Single volumes work too. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got shows on uh, Max, not HBO Max. It's Max now. It's H- yeah, it's HBO as well. Um, oh, is it? Winning Time, Rise yeah. of the Lakers Dynasty. We'll be back in August, I believe it is. So yeah, there's that. So the, and they didn't they change the streaming platform to Max. It's not HBO Max. They anymore. did. It's uh, not HBO Max, but it's Max. But yeah. uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of how it <laughs> works. So somewhere between the two, or someplace, you'll find it. Did you have any last thoughts on Miles Davis or anything that we think we covered it thoroughly enough? Or was there anything you thought of that we didn't mention? Um, No, just the personal, that he was a huge influence on me and I appreciate his work. And, you know, it's great. It's inspiring to see someone who put so much work into his art that um, it still rings out today and is still um, important and uh, has influenced a whole generation or generations of musicians and artists. So... Yeah, miss him. High five to my house. Thank you again to Rodney Barnes. You can find his comics at your local comic shop or search on Amazon for Rodney Barnes for any paperbacks or hardcovers. And you can find his show, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. New episodes stream every Sunday. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined in the last stage. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here. Until then, keep the doors open in the music club!